yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Hello friends, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, the summer book club for Speaking with Joy. We are on week six, I believe, of our summer book club on Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. And today I have the great pleasure of doing a book club as it should be with a friend and not by myself. And so I am welcoming on the show my dear friend, Bose Harrington. Welcome to Speaking with Joy, Bose. Hello, Joy. Uh, Bose has done quite a number of podcasts with me and is a good friend and we share a love of Chesterton which we must um, which I will probe into and we must talk about but I told Bose I had to share several anecdotes with you all to catch up from last week I am finally doing this podcast in Colorado and I think I will be in the same place for maybe two episodes in a row so um, before this last episode I recorded in New Jersey and then the podcast before that I recorded in Durham and the podcast before that I recorded in St. Andrews, and the podcast for that I recorded in Oxford. And so I've been in a different city every every week. Um, but this week, finally, I'm in Colorado, and I should be here for at least one more week before I go to North Carolina. Um, so I'm happy to talk to you all from my happy and fairy-lit um, room in Colorado. Uh, also, another anecdote, which I had to share with all of you, is that in my travels from last week, um, I somehow in a week and a half managed to go to uh, Durham, London, Toronto, New York, New Jersey, and then upstate New York. And when I was in upstate New York, I visited the Plow Magazine offices. If you haven't read Plow, you should. They're wonderful and thoughtful and artistic and deeply Christian. And I went to visit their community, the Bruderhof, where um, about 200 people live in upstate New York, and they live in this entirely sustainable um, kind of farmland, and they make furniture, and they write books, and I don't, it's a very good life. Um, but I met uh, a family there, and they had a pet guinea pig, whose name was G.P. Chesterton. Amazing. Which is amazing. Guinea pig Chesterton. Um, and uh, the kids showed me this guinea pig, and it was very fun, and I thought, oh, I have to tell everyone about that on my podcast. So that is pretty much my update. I'm back in Colorado and um, excited to be doing this week. So Bose, I think we've talked about many things that have bonded us as friends. One of them is a love of Dickens. One of them is a love of hopeful and beautiful things. But Chesterton is one of our, one of our mutual favorite things, wouldn't you say? I would say that Chesterton has influenced both of us to a striking degree uh, in we're both very whimsical people by nature, first of mm-hmm. all, and we're both very hopeful people. And uh, Chesterton has been probably our foremost influence in in crafting our personalities in that respect. Um, I don't know if any of your listeners have read some of his essays, but mm-hmm. he he wrote very whimsically about very random everyday things. Mm-hmm. He wrote an essay about. Um, the joy of writing upon the ceiling with a pencil while lying in bed. He wrote an essay about um, running after one's hat in the rain, and he said, most people think of running after one's hat in the rain as an inconvenience, but I think of it as an adventure. In fact, I think of it as the the greatest kind of adventure. And 
if you've ever read his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, I feel like that's, and you'll probably agree, I'm sure you've mm-hmm. read it, it's one of my defining books mm-hmm. because it somehow combines all these things that you wouldn't think would be combined in a novel. Um, whimsy and poetry and the apocalypse and <laughs> spy fiction and this existential nightmare and all these theological questions into this one perfect book. Yeah. And so I've been a fan of Chesterton since college and he was pivotal in my conversion and pivotal in the formation of my personality. Yeah, I um it's funny that you mentioned Men Who Was Thursday because I wrote possibly the worst paper I've ever written on The Man Who Was Thursday. And I think part of the reason it was uh, when I was at Oxford as an undergrad uh, during my study abroad time there. And I think part of the reason that I wrote such a terrible paper on it was because it meant so much to me, if that makes sense. And um, there's something in Chesterton, and this has been expressed a lot to me in the comments that people have made as we've been reading the book, which is that to read Chesterton is not to like read a straightforward argument that goes from here to there. It's like this pulling you in um, on an adventure where he shows you different things and then he turns them upside down just so that you realize how wonderful they were to begin with. And really to, to get to it, you kind of just have to give yourself over to the experience. And so it's almost hard to write things about it because it's so wonderful that to explain it is almost like explaining a joke. Do you know what I mean? Reading Chesterton is an experience. I feel like you either get Chesterton or you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who find him insufferable, um, <laughs> which is fine. But uh, like his his main thing, and I think the thing that connected us to him mm-hmm. is that he he has this sense of both the horror of the world, but also the the weird beauty of the world. Yes. And he talks in one passage in one of his essays about how if you look at the world reflected through a puddle, mm-hmm. it looks like a weird a weird alien landscape mm-hmm. and he says that the sight of th- that world in the puddle makes you realize just how weird and wonderful your own planet is yes. uh, and how strange it would seem to an alien observer and so he's always looking at the world from that perspective and I think that um, we don't in the world today we don't have the perspective enough we don't mm-hmm. we just accept things as they are and Chesterton said the way to appreciate anything is to imagine that it didn't exist Hmm. and then you're shocked like a burst of lightning with the wonder of it yes and i mean that's the whole we read uh ethics of elfland a couple weeks ago and i feel like that's the whole argument of that chapter is you you know it's the it's the passage where he says that in fairy tales rivers run with wines that you remember for one wild moment that they run with water and it's it's like this attitude of realizing that we come to the world too complacently we think of it as oh well this is just how it is but Chesterton's whole attitude is well but why is it that way it doesn't we we can't take for granted the reason that it that it is that way or that it is at all and um you never lost the curiosity of a child no indeed and something else that we were talking about before we started this podcast then we were like oh no we should have recorded this was we were talking about how both of us have um i have this in my twitter bio uh that i am well actually all my bios that i'm aggressively happy and this was (laughs) actually something that was given to me i don't know if i told you this bose someone once responded to one of my tweets and went ugh this is disgusting you're so aggressively happy and i thought why is that a bad thing i know and i i thought i think I don't know if they meant to insult me or whatever, but I thought, no, that's true. I am aggressively happy. And to me, being aggressively happy isn't a naivety. It's not a 
It's not just a, oh, I'm just going to be happy despite the fact the world is full of horrors and terrors and we're all going to die. It was, for me, it was coming to this point of truly believing that at the heart of it, fundamentally, joy was the more essential thing. Um, and, and, and having reasons for believing that was true and then cultivating a life that was kind of defiantly against the, the trotting pessimism of the world. And I think that is something that is so essential in Chesterton. And um, I love even in the chapter we're going to talk about this week, where he says that to him, the cardinal sin had always been uh, a true antisocial pessimism. And I think the same thing is true for you. Both of us have this kind of defiant, um, un immovable sense of happiness and of cultivating that and pursuing it that doesn't deny pain and darkness. It's like Wendell Berry said, be joyful though you've considered all the facts. I've just been thinking that this week, yeah. And uh, Chesterton, and we'll read this later in Orthodoxy in the last chapter, he had this conviction that at his heart, God was fundamentally joyful. Mm. And because obviously he was a Thomist, he adhered to the theology of Thomas Aquinas. If God was joyful, that meant that the universe itself was at its core a universe of joy. Even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it seems cold and ruthless. He talks about that in The Man Who Was Thursday also. But beyond all the horror, nature, red and tooth and claw and whatnot, the world is a joyful place, brimming over with joy and with the passion of God. Yes, and I love that in The Man Who Was Thursday, he talks about Thursday's character. I, I feel like I can't talk too much about it, but like the terrible back and the terrible front. Like the, the one side, when you look at it from one direction, you see this mm -hmm. kind of horror and pain. But when you look at it the other direction, you see this light and loveliness. And, um, and I think part of that comes with, and we talked about this last week, that when you look at nature, you do see, you do see the brokenness in it, but it's almost like the fact that it's broken testifies to this sense of wholeness that we have, that the whole world kind of tends towards or longs for. And for Chesterton, I think that longing spoke to him of the more fundamental truth, which was the wholeness that all the, the brokenness actually testified to, if that makes sense. That the fact that we can sense that it's broken kind of gestures us towards a greater wholeness. So anyway, I guess Bose and I really like Chesterton. Love him. <laughs> Love Chesterton, indeed. Um, so I suppose we should actually talk about this week, which is chapter six. Is it The Paradoxes of Christianity? I think that's what it's called, isn't it? Yes, The Paradoxes of Orthodoxy. That's what it is. The par no, The Paradoxes of Christianity, which oh. he, he talks about it as orthodoxy throughout the... Um, throughout the chapter. So I thought that Bose, I had Bose, <laughs> we were going to do a different podcast, which we will hopefully still do, and you should go listen to on my Patreon and on Bose's Patreon. Bose has an excellent Patreon that you should go and find and support. Um, so Bose, very graciously, before this, before we Skype today, I, I said, well, I'm doing a podcast on Chesterton. And he went, oh, I love Chesterton. And I was like, of course you love Chesterton. Do you want to do this podcast with me? So um, I will never say no to that. No. So Bose went and read the chapter, and um, but he knows it very well. So I'm going to have, Bose, if you don't mind, can you kind of give us a summary-ish of, of Chesterton's thought in this chapter? So Chesterton starts out this chapter, and he's talking about how he grew up and he was raised Christian, but had come to unbelief as a teenager. But he noticed something very peculiar. He was reading the different attacks on the Christian faith that were being written by popular writers at that time. And he realized that Christianity was being attacked from two different angles. And a lot of times the angles were contradictory. 
um, a person would say that one thing was bad about Christianity and then say that the opposite thing was also bad about Christianity. Like, for example, um, they would say Christianity is a religion of war and violence. It's caused only bloodshed. And then they turn around and in the same breath they would say Christianity is a weak, peaceful religion. It's a p- religion of pacifism, and I hate that. And uh, so he points out five or six examples of this examples of this and he goes how can christianity embody all these contradictions how can it be both too feminine and also oppress women um Mm -hmm. how can it be uh too pessimistic and too optimistic he says they all want to you know just go to heaven um and yet uh and say that the world's all very, very bad, but then the pessimist is the one who actually thinks the world is very bad and criticizes it for that reason. And so he decides, Chesterton realizes eventually that maybe the problem isn't Christianity, maybe the problem is Christianity's detractors. Mm -hmm. And he says he had this mad bolt of revelation that um, maybe Christianity was like the key inside a door that fits reality perfectly and maybe the reason that christianity was illogical was because reality itself is in a sense illogical and uh, Hmm. he says if if we were trying to invent a system um of a philosophy that came from our own minds then it would be too rigid it would be too logical and systematic but because christianity is something divine because it was given to us by revelation from heaven um then it fits the illogicality of our world. Mm-hmm. And the things that um, confuse us about Christianity are things that we need to grapple with because those things are true, and it's us who have strayed, us who have erred and gone astray. Mm-hmm. And so he spends the first half of the chapter making that argument. And then he discusses, for example, how Christianity showed us how to combine the opposite passions of war and peace and how to combine um, humility with pride and the key argument in this chapter in this section here in the second half of the chapter is that Christianity doesn't prize one virtue over another it prizes both virtues even when they are opposites and but and, and the crucial thing is it shows us how to embody both virtues at the same time in a way that no one had figured out before Jesus did. And Mm -hmm. he says, this is the genius of the Christian faith, is that it understands all the human passions and allows us to express them in their fullness, even when they Mm -hmm. contradict each other. For instance, um, pride and humility, he says that Christianity allows us to be proud of being a human being, but... Mm -hmm humble in that we are only a human being and a flawed human being at that and uh, which which answers the question that thousands of philosophers have been asking for thousands of years which is how does one be humble but also and not given to pride but also not be too humble or too proud Mm -hmm. and chesterton says this is how you do it you you embrace being a human but be humble in your individuality and your personhood yeah and so he goes on to say, he talks about, Chesterton's a huge fan of the Middle Ages, and he seems to be suggesting in the, the back third of the chapter that um, it was the paradoxes of Christianity that let loose the colorful pageantry and passion of the Middle Ages. He, he says, 
and he talks about this in, in other chapters in the book, is that it's like a walled garden, and orthodoxy is the fence that allows the garden to flourish. And when orthodoxy was running the world for a thousand years of the Middle Ages, we had we had the stones of Chartres, and we had Joan of Arc, and we had all these wonderful, invigorating, intoxicating things like St. Francis and St. Clair and St. Teresa of Avila and St. John, things that you wouldn't put together and things that the modern world has not been able to reproduce because only the church could produce those things in their richness and their fullness. And uh, concludes the chapter by saying that orthodoxy could have strayed at any point and everything would have gone horribly wrong, but because orthodoxy, because the church, because God held the church together, um, he hasn't introduced God yet at this point, he's still making his argument, but God is implicit in it. He implies that because God was holding the orthodox church together, the world itself was able to hang together in a kind of perfect balance. Hmm. And there you go. There's our summary of the, the whole chapter. And also, for anyone who may occasionally get confused, when, when Chesterton says orthodoxy or the orthodox church he means little o orthodoxy in the sense of faithfulness to the essential creeds of the christian tradition uh, rather than like greek or russian orthodox and um something that i think is interesting in this chapter and i thought what would be fun is just bose and i decided to do this in the style of just chatting as friends over tea which is essentially what we're doing uh, only it's very late so we're mostly drinking water Water. <laughs> um, we'll just be to talk about things that popped out to us in this chapter and something I think is interesting is that in this chapter he begins to return to the metaphors that he opens the whole book with which are those of, of a riddle so kind of um, there's the part where he talks about coincidences uh, that happen often become begin to seem less like coincidences and more like the answer to a riddle mm-hmm. so you have this sense of what do we do with all these contradictions and what fits them so it's a riddle or a key and then also i love the idea that he comes back to of wholeness or proportion and i love the metaphor he uses where he talks about how there have been all these contradictory um claims of christianity you know that it was that it was either um like you said too it, it battled too much and you think of the crusades the violence whatever or that it was kind of the passive um, as Nietzsche would put it, it was the, um, what did Nietzsche call it? The, the religion of the lamb. Um, something like that. Yeah. Something like that Nietzsche was like, you know, very bravely writing from his room where he wasn't fighting anyone, telling everyone they should fight everyone. Um, which is basically what Twitter can be from time to time. Um, anyway, but, uh, so he, he has these two things and he describes it as, as a whole bunch of people describing one person. And one person says, oh, they're too fat. And one person says, oh, they're, they're too skinny. And one person says, oh, they're too tall. And he said, what if the thing that we're describing, the, the, the reason that we're having a hard time describing it is because we're all shaped by our own disproportion. And so the fat man is like, likely to see the, the normal-sized man as too skinny, and the skinny man is likely to see him as too fat. And there's this sense of all the different proportions that perhaps what they were looking at was actually the normal thing. And this is kind of the suspicion. And you always have the sense that he's not convinced yet this is true uh, in this part of the story of his life, but that he's suspecting that maybe the reason that they were all so wildly contradictory was was that Christianity was the normal man that the fat man couldn't see and the thin man couldn't see and the tall man couldn't see because they were judging according to their own proportions. And that kind of goes back to this sense of 
that he talks about a lot of like wholeness or proportion, um, that of the madman or the sense of kind of being wrapped up in our own um, view of things. And um, that ties to me with another thing which kind of stood out to me, and I was curious about your thoughts about this, Bose, which is that all of them kind of assume Christianity is the thing in the middle that needs to be attacked or undone. Does that make sense? Because they're already kind of assuming it as the central gravity point. And it reminds me of um, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre. Have you read that, Bose? No. I think you'd really like it. Uh, it's a bit... I've lost perspective on what's dense, I think, since doing a PhD. But I think it's not dense. I think it's really enjoyable. But he talks about why we have such a hard time um, talking about moral or ethical issues in the modern world. And he says that the reason is because we have all inherited the language of Christianity, basically, and basically a virtue ethics, but we've rejected its foundations. But at the heart of it, like when you look at someone like Kant, who's trying to justify morality purely by reason, which of course Chesterton would not uh, endorse, in the back of Kant's mind, he has all these assumed maxims uh, that really come from Christianity. Like, even the things that people are rebelling against, the fact that they're rebelling against something is because they're... Not essentially Christianity. Yeah, there's this central gravity point, which you could say is evidence of natural law, or you could just say it's evidence of the fact that our, especially Western culture, has been largely shaped by Christianity. And so even the things that are vitriolically... Uh, attacking Christianity, it's because they're kind of assuming some of these central tenets as the things that they need to rebel against because they are so central. Well, sociologist Rene Girard, who became Catholic later in life, talks about this in his books. He says that his contention is that that the West, um, the world even, has become so thoroughly Christianized mm-hmm. that when uh, that every movement that tries to break away from Christianity, the modern world in particular, is trying to become unchristian, but is actually just becoming a secular version of Christianity, of the thing that it's rebelling against. And he says that what we think of as secular liberal humanitarianism is just, is essentially Jesus's ethic. Mm-hmm. Like, he has so thoroughly shaped the world that even when we think we've gotten away from him, we can't. We're just, we're living out his creed without meaning to. There's, interesting, there's an um, English writer called Tom Holland, who's kind of like a pop history writer, and he, he did this interview where he said, I used to always be very kind of like secular, and, and he said, well, I thought, you know, why would we need to get these things from Christianity when we could get them from, you know, the ancient Greeks? And then he realized that the ancient Greeks really were not super into, like, valuing human beings just because they were human beings, you know? Right. They valued landowning men, and that was kind of it. Um, and he started to realize all these values he had were distinctly Christian and kind of didn't exist until Christianity came into the classical world. And he said, so I realized that fundamentally I am a Christian and I have Christian values. And I don't even think that he is a believer, but he came to realize as a, as a historian that kind of exactly what you're saying, that even in reaction, even secularism and its reaction to, um, you know, religiosity that seems overwhelming or, or whatever really is fundamentally reacting in a Christian way or in a way that Christianity gave it the vocabulary to do. Um, which I think is is kind of what Chesterton's saying, is that all of these things 
even in so much as they rebel against, they are still kind of subtly acknowledging this center of gravity. The primacy of Jesus and his orthodox. Yes. And I think that's an interesting thing, too, which he's building up to, but is that it's not just this creed that's at the center. It really is a person. A right, person, a person and an institution. Yes, that that is not this abstract list of ideals, but is actually the embodiment, and it's only an embodiment that you can get these paradoxes that are met. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, and it's only in the embodiment that you get the cathedrals and the Joan of Arc and the St. Francis. Yeah. Um, and uh, doesn't he talk about that later? He In one of the last chapters, he compares Christianity to Buddhism and talks about how Buddhism is essentially just a creed, whereas Christianity is is the embodiment of something. Um, even if you don't agree with what the something is, it's you have to agree that it's more than just an ethic. Yes. That's something I've always found the most compelling to me, or the thing that keeps me really, is that my faith is not about a list of principles that I, you know, believe really hard, depending it's on It's not a philosophy. It's not a philosophy. It's something that you live out. It's something that you live out, and it's also something that has, to believe, be a Christian is to believe that something has happened. It's mm. to believe that Jesus historical lived. Historical fact. Yeah. A historical fact, but also just a historical fact, and then the belief that the life that was started in in Christ was then carried out in the church and that it still exists. Yeah, and that there's this reality, this something outside of myself that I am responding to or participating in. And that it's that that's um, what it is to be Christian. It's not just to hold beliefs, it's to live in response to this reality. Um, and, okay, so the other thing he gets back to, which you articulated well, is the idea of virtues being out of balance or in balance. Because at the very, I think it's in the first chapter he talks about, or the second chapter, he talks about um, how the modern world has imbalanced virtues. Uh, mm-hmm. Where he says that, you know, it's become too humble because it has, uh, we're, we're humble in places we shouldn't be. And that's um, made difficulties. But then he almost kind of contradicts himself here because then he's like, no, no, no. It's, it's never that they're imbalanced. It's that both of them need to kind of like reach this point of fullness and of strength where they clash up against each other but are still right. You know, that, um, yeah, and I, I love that. They begin to present the virtues as, as things that stretch all the way into their fullness. And that as they do that, they may contradict each other, but it's almost like they mesh and become something more than they were before. Hmm. Yeah. I think a lot about that line that he has. I think it's earlier in the book where he says that the modern world was broken at the Reformation and all the vices were let loose and all the virtues were let loose too, but mm. in a bad way. And uh, what do you think that means? I think, yeah, I know. I've thought about that. So I think that's him essentially saying that we have let some virtues like outweigh others. But I don't think that his and I think here what he's saying so he's saying perhaps that we've let humility when it comes to intellect outweigh courage perhaps right mm-hmm. so that we are so humble we can't believe anything um, but I think his solution is not I think this is kind of where he begins to present his solution it's not that we should be a little bit you know less humble it's that we should have like the opposing virtues meet each other in their fullness so that we should be fully humble 
and fully um, courageous. Yeah, or proud, exactly. Um, and that, yeah, and so it's not that the, the solution to the out, unweighed virtues is to be less humble or to be less courageous. It's that they need to be courageous in its fullness. It kind of reminds me of The Great Divorce, which of course we did for our book club last year, um, and where you will see these characters, uh, you know, in in heaven. So it's all, all the, or not in heaven, um, who are trying to get into heaven. And they will have something that will trip them up. And in one of the cases, it's like a mother whose love for her son is the thing that's become an idol. And everyone's like, well, how can mother's love be an idol? Um, and, uh, but, but, and the question becomes, well, should she love her son less? Like, is that the thing that would help her get into heaven? And Lewis's answer, which I think is coming from Augustine and a great line before, is no, she shouldn't love him less. The fact that this love is tripping her up is because it isn't actually full. It's the virtue that hasn't grown into its fullness. It's not properly directed. Yeah, it's not properly directed and it's not properly grown. It's not full. It's not in its fullness. Um, What do you think... I was thinking something that bothers me slightly about Chesterton's approach in this is that sometimes it doesn't leave out the possibility that sometimes humans just really do make mistakes and sometimes people just are violent or are too humble. Do you know what I mean? How so? Well, like, there are moments where you want to say, um, like, yes, there is this great continuity that has continued in the church, but sometimes Christians just were too violent. Or right, some- we haven't always lived up to our ideals in the way that we should have. Yes. And, and he seems to gloss over that. He does seem to gloss over that. And and also, if he's right and um, and the virtues really flourish when they are in fullness and relationship to each other, then shouldn't we want people who aren't like just embodiments of one of the virtues? What do you think of that? Or do you think that in the church, because we are together, we can kind of be joined in one body with those virtues fully lived out? Does that make sense? He's not suggesting that um, one person should have both the virtue of pacifism and the virtue of of war. He's saying that different people um, manifest different aspects of God and that the church allows them a place where they can be themselves without reproach. Yes. And I do love that. I think one of my favorite sections, I keep on trying to find it. So, aha, so I have discovered it. Um, it's this section where he's talking about courage and about how courage has to be this kind of paradoxical meeting of two things. And I'm going to read this passage because I just liked it so much. He, the soldier, can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and not escape. And he must not merely wait for death, for then he would be a suicide and will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. No philosopher, I fancy, has ever expressed this romantic riddle with adequate lucidity, and I certainly have not done so. Christianity has done more. It has marked the limits in the awful graves of the suicide and the hero, showing the distance between him who dies for the sake of living and him who dies for the sake of dying. And I just love this passage and also the bit um, slightly before it, which perhaps I should have started with. Um, where it says, courage means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. He that will lose his life, the same shall save it, is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. 
It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors and mountaineers. And I love that because it showed, like you were saying earlier, Bose, that there's this kind of paradoxical nature in reality um, that we can't get away from. That if we were to find a creed or a belief that really matched it, would have to kind of be a meeting of those two things. And that's a really good um, example of it, I think, for me. A good book to read with this, a companion book, would be The Everlasting Man. I don't know if you've read it, but it's another um, book that Chesterton wrote in this vein, but it focuses not so much on the institution of the Christian Church as it does the life of Christ, and uh, places him in the context of the world in which he was born. And uh, he talks about how Jesus was unique in that the striking things that he said sound like nothing that anyone had ever said before and that's why he was able to turn the world upside down was because he wasn't um, spouting um, universal wisdom and he never intended to um, he wasn't trying to be a philosopher or an ethicist he was uh, he was saying weird things like this uh, he that will lose his life the same shall save it mm-hmm. and which Chesterton points out here is an, actually an intensely practical bit of advice and and there's there's a great line in that chapter in everlasting man where he says there have been thousands and thousands of volumes written about war and how bad it is and jesus never said anything about it all we know of, about what he thought of war is that he had a fondness for soldiers mm-hmm. and so the the picture that you get from reading that chapter is that Jesus was this incredibly strange man, but he was strange in a way that the world needed. And Chesterton eventually gestures to the possibility that maybe his strangeness was the strangeness of another world coming into this world, and maybe he really was divine. Hmm. You know, what's interesting about that book is that Lewis, when he, when somebody wrote him a letter asking him, you know, what works of apologetics would you read? Also, it made me laugh when Chesterton in this chapter is like, I don't really read apologetics. <laughs> I did love that. Um, but when people would ask Lewis about what Chesterton, or what apologetics to read, he would recommend them Chesterton and specifically The Everlasting Man. Mm-hmm. He, said, that he was, said it was the most formative book that he had ever read in becoming a Christian, the one that led to his conversion. Lewis said that. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Wow. I think he had a list of ten books, and number one was The Everlasting Man, and Orthodoxy was on the list, and The Sermons of George MacDonald. Oh, yes. Also, on a side note, if anyone wants them, The Sermons of George MacDonald are on Kindle for free. Um, so go go forth and find that. Um, no, I think that's true. And I think as we kind of draw-ish to the close, and Bose, you can be thinking about any kind of final thoughts you have on this on this chapter... Um, I think that what Chesterton is beginning to approach in this chapter is the feeling that reality doesn't present us. It presents us with a kind of order and unity that's always a bit off, that has a bit of a twirl or a, a tinge or a turning to the left. Um, as he says, we, we think we can count on men being mirrors in themselves, but then the heart is on one side. And Chesterton felt that the things that felt odd about Christianity were precisely kind of an answer to that oddity that we actually experience in reality. And that actually paradox and the paradoxes that were in Christianity um, were not a sign of its inconsistency, but a, a sign of its being kind of elaborate enough to make sense of the world as it was. And then I think that 
the the sense that we're building to is that this can't just be contained in a creed because creeds are always trying to only make things um, make sense and be in order but that this creed must be about a person because paradoxes can only exist and they really particularly existed well um, in embodiments and, and someone who can hold many things together so that's kind of what I would say about this chapter. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or things that are interesting to you, Bose? I feel like he's developing an argument here that he's eventually going to bring to flower in his book, uh, Why I Became Catholic. Hmm. But, but there's a crucial line in that book, which um, you could take with you even if you're not Catholic. But he says, we want a church that is right, not only when we are right, but especially when we are wrong. Hmm. And so you can see the seeds of that idea forming here because he, he's essentially saying the church is very complex, but its complexity, if you look at it long enough, always turns out to be right. Mm-hmm. And you realize that um, if you find a fault in it, if you find a flaw, the flaw is generally within yourself. And so comparing yourself to the church, the church will always come out on top because the church is the truth. And so I'm going to close with this passage, the, the last paragraph. He says, I think this is frankly beautiful. He says, The church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war horse. Yet it is utterly unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea like a vulgar fanaticism. She swerved to left and right, so exactly as to avoid enormous obstacles. She left, on one hand, the huge bulk of Arianism, butcherous by all the worldly powers to make Christianity too worldly. The next instant, she was swerving to avoid an Orientalism which would have made it too unworldly. The Orthodox Church never took the tame course or accepted the conventions. The Orthodox Church was never respectable. It would have been easier to have accepted the earthly power of the Arians. They were 4th century heretics. It would have been easy in the Calvinistic 17th century to fall into the bottomless pit of predestination. It is easy to be a madman. It is easy to be a heretic. It is always easy to let the age have its head. The difficult thing is to keep one's own. It is always easy to be a modernist, as it is easy to be a snob. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom, that would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. I love that. What an excellent way to end uh, the truth reeling but erect. Well, this has been a lovely, um, a lovely time to have you on the show, Bose and to um, chatter and ramble about one of our favorite uh, dear literary friends. I hope that everyone will go and um, uh, discuss your thoughts. What did you think of this week? What got you? What confused you? What annoyed you? What fascinated you? What compelled you? Go and put your comments and your questions and all those things on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. We'd both love to hear your thoughts. And also, this is a reminder, I forgot to say this at the beginning, um, but I'm doing events in Colorado and North Carolina 
um, on August 8th and 9th in North Carolina. There will be a concert evening and then a tea and then morning on the 9th. And then I'm also doing an evening in Colorado. So go look at those and sign up and come and be my friend. Um, I forgot to say that at the beginning, but go do that. Vose, thank you for coming on the show, and we'll have to talk about Chesterton again very, very soon. Agreed. All right, so long, everyone.